I invite you actually, if you want to stand, if you're willing and able. We're going to focus on a few verses in Romans to start, but I just want to read a little bit of Romans 1, just for context as we begin. Starting in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So reads the word of God. You may be seated. I have a friend who for some years was a missionary in Mexico City helping to plant churches in Mexico. And before that, where I met him was in my seminary days, and he was a pastor in Portland, Oregon. And part of his evangelistic outreach efforts, he was a fan of stand-up comedy. So he got into stand-up, into the local stand-up scene in Portland, Oregon, and he would go and do improv and stand-up classes. And I went to go watch one of his stand-up sets once, just in support, because I like stand-up comedy myself. And and I'll never forget how he opened up his set in the the middle, in the heart of Portland, Oregon. said, I'm an evangelical pastor, which of course means I love Jesus and hate gay people. And it got a huge laugh. He was joking, of course, this is stand-up comedy, but he was playing upon the commonly held cultural assumption that Christians hate gay people. 
And in just dealing with that right out front and putting it out there hyperbolically, he ingratiated himself actually to everybody in the room and his, his good stand-up set. But it, of course, raises the question, is Christianity homophobic and transphobic? That is a common objection to our faith, especially in our day, that Christians and Christianity are homophobic and transphobic. It may be one of the biggest cultural talking points of our day in relation to Christians in the church. And something I think we need to have a good answer for. So I want to dig into that question this morning. Is Christianity homophobic and transphobic? Now, I just want to answer the question right away, as simply as I possibly can, right at the start. So to begin with, I just want to answer... Are we, as Christians, homophobic and transphobic? I'll break it down this way. Do Christians hate gay and trans-identifying people? No. Christians, if they're truly Christians, are called to follow Jesus, who calls us to love all people, all sinful people, all wicked people, all righteous people, whoever they may be. We are called to love all people, whether they are enemies, neighbors, friends, whoever they may be. We have a universal call to love all people. So do we hate gay people and trans-identifying people? No. The answer is no. Are we afraid of gay and trans-identifying people? Again, no. We do not need to be afraid of those in the LGBTQ community. We don't have to stand uh, apart from them. We can be friends with them. We're family with them. We can uh, interact with people who identify that way. Paul tells us that if we wanted to get away from sinful people, we'd have to leave the world, and that's not our call. So we're not afraid of them. Are Christians concerned about the teaching direction and ramifications brought from the LGBTQ movement? Yes. There are some trends and affirmations of this movement that fly in the face of Christian conviction in Scripture, and we believe not only against God's will, but actually bad for people. So we would disagree with a number of things put forward by the LGBTQ movement. Does that make us homophobic and transphobic? I would say no, but according to the current popular definition of homophobia and transphobia, yes. Because the current definition of what it means to be phobic is to disagree with it. Currently in our world, if you see same-sex homosexual activity as sinful according to Scripture... And if you see transgenderism as contrary to God's design for people, you will be seen and labeled as homophobic and transphobic. Because our world currently defines being phobic not as being afraid of something, but simply as disagreeing with something. So if we disagree with all the tenets of the LGBTQ movement, then we will be labeled as phobic, and that's not something we can really get around. And we are going to disagree in some places very strongly with the LGBTQ movement. So there's a short answer for you. Do we hate? No. Are we afraid? No. Are we concerned? Yes. Are we going to disagree? Yes. Does that make us phobic? Well, whatever you want to say about that. But I want to give a fuller response as we work through some scripture together. And 
As I've said about a number of these sermons, I am not going to say everything that can and should be said. There's too much to fit in one sermon. We're going to have a Sunday school class on this just to further unpack some things. So we can't say everything in one sermon. And I'm going to look at this, hopefully biblically, from a number of different angles. So if you want to isolate one part of this sermon and then label me or Christianity in one way, just targeting one part that you either reject or affirm, and feel free, go ahead, you can do that. But I would encourage you to listen to the whole of it and to work through all of Scripture, what all of Scripture has to say on this. There will be parts that maybe upset you, there will be parts that maybe you would affirm. My encouragement to you is to listen to the whole message. And let's start by looking at Romans 1. My plan is to start here in a few verses, in the middle of what we read, and then move on to some other biblical applications. And this might be, in Romans 1, specifically verses 24 through 27, this might be the most definitive statement on homosexuality in the New Testament, and probably the most offensive. So we'll start there. If you know the context of Romans 1, as I just said, you know Paul's overall goal in Romans 1, 2, and 3, in that section of Scripture, is to show that all people are sinners, that all are unrighteous and worthy of condemnation that all have fallen from the glory of God. Here in Romans 1, Paul is specifically speaking about pagan people, those who do not know God at all, those who should know God, who have seen God and his work in all of creation and should be able to look and see that there is a God who is righteous and just and holy, who's made all this, but they reject that truth and they reject God. They suppress the truth that they know internally and instead have exchanged the worship of God for the worship of idols, for fallen creaturely objects. And they worship idols instead, and this is the result of that, and the fallout of that exchange that Paul talks about here. In verses 24 through 25, he talks about what happens when we suppress the truth of God and worship idols instead. Paul describes our fallen condition, exchanging God for idols. Our fallen condition outside of God, exchanging God for idols. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So verse 25 describes the condition of all those who don't worship God. They reject the creator and said worship creation. And this is what happens when you reject the Creator. As Creator, God has ordered everything. He has made the world as it is to be, and He has designed the world to work a certain way. And because He is Creator, the one who made us and owns us, He determines what is moral, what is right, what is just, what is good and healthy, what will lead to life and health, God has designed all those things as creator. That includes what is good and right with our bodies, with our sexuality, with marriage, and everything else that is his domain. He has created it. And our obligation as creatures, as ones made by God, is to worship him as creator and obey him. And if we do that, we'll find life and health and happiness. But this is the foundation of all sin and rebellion. The foundation of all sin is the rejection of God as the creator, as the one who owns and determines everything for us. And when we reject God and worship idols instead, there is a fallout from that. There is a consequence. 
According to verse 24, Paul says, eventually, God gives people what they want. Choose idols instead of God. Eventually, God will give you over to that which you have chosen. He will take his hand of restraint off the wheel and say, live by your lusts, your passions and your desires. And despite what our world says, all of our inner passions and desires are not good and are not to be all affirmed. They actually lead to our destruction. Just because we have an orientation towards something, it does not mean that orientation is good and healthy. Just because I want something, it does not mean that what I want is good for me and good for others. Very often what we want is the opposite of what is good for us. Paul had seen this firsthand in Corinth. Paul's writing this letter to the Romans from Corinth, and in Corinth there was a temple, probably a few temples, but a temple to Aphrodite, the god of love. And in that temple were hundreds and hundreds of temple prostitutes or priestesses who were there for religion, for worship. But worship and religion was combined with sexuality. So Paul saw firsthand what happened when people replaced worship of God with worship of an idol in the temple and the sexual catastrophe that that led to. And what happened when people followed their own passions and desires. And from that vantage point, Paul is writing to the Romans saying, this is what happens when people dishonor God. They end up dishonoring their own bodies and each other by their fallen desires. Then Paul talks about one particular expression of that fallen condition, verses 26 through 27. Here's a sinful expression of their fallen condition. The sinful expression is exchanging natural relations for the unnatural. So if they, they have exchanged God for idols, and the result of that now is they exchange natural relations for what is unnatural, for unnatural relations. So one of the expressions of that fallen condition is Widespread homosexuality. That's what Paul is saying in verses 26 through 27. Here's a sinful expression of their idolatry. They have exchanged natural relations for unnatural. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So here Paul lists in verses 26 through 27 one specific example of God giving people over to their fallen passions and how they dishonor themselves. It's not the only example he'll go on as we read in verses 28 through 32, to list other sins that come about as a result of fallen people chasing their own desires. But this is the first one he lists because it's a prominent example. As Paul describes it, unnatural relations. Paul first says that the women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. So we might wonder, what does he mean by that? Natural relations for what is contrary to nature. What does he mean? Well, verse 27 makes it very clear what Paul means, because he says, likewise, the men have done the same. They've given up natural relations with women in exchange for unnatural relations with other men. Men became inflamed in their passions for other men and acted on those passions. 
It's clear what Paul's talking about. When people are handed over to sinful idolatry, one of the results is they turn to same-sex sexual relationships following their impure passions. Commentator Tom Schreiner says, just as idolatry is a violation and perversion of what God intended, so too homosexual relations are contrary to what God planned when he created man and woman. Note, Paul says that these things are contrary to nature. He isn't just saying this is against cultural norms. And he isn't just saying this is against God's law revealed for us, though it is. Paul is saying this is contrary to nature itself, how God designed and ordained people to be. It's contrary to how God made us in the beginning, in the design of man and woman united together. This is contrary not just to inner passions, contrary not just to law revealed, but contrary to nature itself. He goes back all the way to the beginning. The plain reading of Scripture says, same-sex sexual relations are an example of sinful impurity and a result of idolatry. Paul says their existence is an indication of God's judgment. Look at what he says in verse 27. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. As you look at that verse, ask yourself, what is the penalty? What does Paul mean by that? When he says that when men and women, when they exchange natural relations for unnatural, same-sex activity, they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. What's the error that he's talking about, and what is the penalty? The context of the passage makes it clear what the error is. The foundational error is idolatry, exchanging worship of God for worship of idols. The result, verse 27, is homosexual activity. And Paul says that is the penalty. The sin itself is the penalty for the error of idolatry. Do you see what Paul is saying? Paul is not saying, if you commit these acts, you might be judged. He'll say actually that later. What he's actually saying here is, the very existence of this kind of sin is itself judgment. This is the judgment of God that these things happen that is the expression of the wrath and judgment of God. Because of their idolatry, God in his judgment gave them up to their own passions and desires. And that is his judgment, that you will go in sin and continue in it and chase it down to the depths. Sam Alberry, who is a same-sex attracted yet celibate Christian minister, he describes this well, he says, when we try to visualize what God's wrath looks like, many of us imagine scenes from a disaster movie or think of lightning bolts falling from the sky. But Paul gives us a very different picture. We see God's wrath in this. He gives us what we want. This is his present-day judgment against sin. We ask for reality without him, and he gives us a taste of it. The penalty for idolatry is God letting you have the sin you want and living with it. 
and then you experience the natural outcomes and consequences of that sin. So when we see a society embrace same-sex attractions as normal and good, that is not a society that is tempting God's judgment. That is a culture that is already experiencing God's judgment. Am I saying that same-sex activity is the only sin that merits God's judgment? No. Again, Paul's going to go on and list a bunch. But this is a prominent example of a culture that has abandoned God, turned to idols, and thus God has given them over to their desires. When we worship idols instead of God, he gives us over to our idols, and that is an expression of his judgment. Having said that, let's look through some other aspects of Scripture and what Scripture has to say about this topic. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Another passage that speaks the truth that Scripture views homosexual activity as sinful. Scripture views homosexual activity as sinful. That's clear throughout Scripture in the New Testament. And here's... Another brief confirmation of that, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Here Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So it's a serious text, a serious warning against all kinds of sin, one of which, Paul says, is men who practice homosexuality. And the Greek words that are actually used there are two Greek words that refer to probably the dominant and passive partner in some homosexual relations. Your English translation's nice enough of that passage for you a little bit. Both are guilty of sin. And the kind of sin... Now, for those who continue in that sin, will not see the kingdom of God. And in several other places, Jude 6 and 7, 1 Timothy 1, 10, New Testament sees homosexual activity as sinful. That is clear across the Bible. It is not really debatable, though some will debate it, that the New Testament witness, the biblical witness, is consistent on this and seeing homosexual activity as sinful. And some will say, well, Jesus never talked about this, and we follow Jesus, and Jesus is very loving, and that's the kind of God I want to follow, the Jesus who loves and affirms that he never talks about this sin. Jesus also never talks about pedophilia or bestiality. Or incest, as far as I know. So by that same logic, would Jesus affirm those things? Jesus also, when he talks about marriage, affirms union of man and woman, and never says anything otherwise. And Jesus, when he talks about things like sexual sin, he doesn't really loosen up the standards of the Old Testament, he actually tightens them. So when Jesus talks about sexual sin, he says, even if you look at a woman, look at someone lustfully, and lust in your own heart, you're guilty of sin. And when people hear the teaching of Jesus on sexuality, they say, wow, this is really strict. Who can abide by this? So we should not expect that Jesus is all of a sudden going to turn and go against the rest of Scripture on a matter of sexual sin. He'll be consistent with it. In fact, teach us that this is all condemning. One author says this, he says, Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstances. 
That's a definitive statement. I'll read it again. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstances. Now, the person who wrote that is not a conservative evangelical. He is a gay atheist by the name of Lewis Crompton. And he is saying the Bible is incompatible with the affirmation of homosexuality. And he is right. And he has made the choice against scripture. But the point is, we all have to make a choice. What are we going to affirm? What scripture says clearly, or what our world will say to us? Now, we're going to slowly work our way towards the good news, in that condemnation is not the only word that scripture has to say. In fact, in the verse after, 9 and 10, verse Corinthians 6, Paul says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. The Lord saves, he changes, he forgives, and he gives grace. And we'll circle back up around to that, but in a, for a moment I want to talk about another biblical application. What Paul says in Romans 1, it comes from Genesis one twenty seven that men and women are different by God's design. Men and women are different by God's design. It's not arbitrary. It's not an accident. It is intentional. By God's design, men and women are different, which is the foundation for all of this. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. From the beginning, this is the case. God created each man and woman in his own image, together sharing the image of God, individually sharing the image of God. And this is a binary. These are the genders, the sexes, male and female. They are not interchangeable. They are not unintentional. That God, by his choice, by his design, made both glorious and unique and complementary. So based on scripture and scientific reality, we affirm that men and women are fundamentally different. The same in bearing the image of God, the same in dignity, the same in humanity, the same in value, but different biologically and psychologically and according to scripture. Our maleness and our femaleness is not something we can put on and take off. It is hardwired into us at the chromosomal and cellular and spiritual level. We are male or female. And we as Christians are concerned about blurring the lines of these things. Because when you do, it leads to societal trouble. Because God has made as the foundational building block of society and culture the male and female relationship of husband and wife. That is the building block upon which all of culture is built. And when you mess with that fundamental building block of maleness and femaleness, and you take out that block, the Jenga tower falls down. And we see this today. Both men and women are hurt when their individual value and distinction is not maintained, as male and female. So this happens when, to use dumb current examples, this happens when biological males are allowed to compete in women's sports is not a good thing for women. It pushes women out because of their inherent physical disadvantage. It happens when biological males are allowed to identify as females and move to women's prisons, and then we wonder why and how women are raped by female-identifying males in prison. 
We see this when women are diminished and not called mothers, but birthing persons. Because we believe men can have babies when pregnant women identify as male. We see the fruit of our gender confusion in the ongoing struggles for young men. Young men in particular are struggling in our culture. Boys are now 50% less likely than girls to be proficient in math, reading, and science. Suicide rates are four to five times higher in teenage boys than girls. Males increasingly are not going to college, and it's not because they're going to trade schools. It's because they're checking out altogether. The cultural and ideological shifts of our day are increasingly not good for the health of young men because they're being told over and over again that your maleness is not significant. That there is nothing inherently meaningful about being male or female, so the messages received, there's nothing inherently significant about how God made me to be, and we are seeing the fruit of this. So we as Christians insist and affirm what Scripture teaches and what is consistent with Scripture, that being a male is a distinctly good thing and different from being a female. And being a female is a distinctly good thing, a uniquely good thing and different from being a male. God has made both for good purposes, and these things are not fluid or indistinguishable or malleable, but hardwired into us at the level of cell and soul. Which leads to another biblical application, male and female, and that is that both body and soul are essential to our humanity. Both body and soul are essential to our humanity, to who we are as people. And this has been subtly abandoned by many today. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul is communicating to the Corinthians, Your body is important. It's a part of how God made you. It's part of who God made you to be. In 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 8, Paul will talk about the resurrection of our bodies, that our bodies will not be cast off forever when we die, but actually our bodies will be resurrected and live forever. These are not things that we just want to get rid of. It's not the goal of spirituality to be rid from our biological, physical reality. The goal is, And the Christian hope is that our bodies will be resurrected and redeemed because God places great value on the body. And that our body is linked to who we are in spirit and soul. And these things are tied together and they affect one another. And modern gender theory removes them, dissociates them from each other. So so specifically teaches that we can have a gender identity, how we identify ourselves, can be different than what our biological sex is, and that's not a problem. That's actually a good thing. Or we can have a gender expression, how we express ourselves to the world, either male or female or something else, different than who we are biologically. And the underlying spiritual belief in that is that the body actually doesn't matter. What matters is who we are inside, psychologically and spiritually. And scripture tells us that's actually not true. Who we are in our bodies really matters. There is, some of you who know this term, Gnosticism, an ancient heresy that scripture deals with. First John deals with this. And under Gnosticism, the belief was that our goal spiritually is to be get rid of our lesser form, our bodies, and just exist spiritually. And Gnosticism taught that because what our Matter didn't matter, 
We could do whatever we wanted with our bodies, whether it be sin or whatever else. That didn't matter. All that mattered was who we are in our spirit. And the modern gender theory movement is just Gnosticism reborn and is incompatible with Scripture. And what this theory does that separates our bodies from our souls, it ends up corrupting bodies. So you have a medical industry in hospitals advising people, even kids, to cut off their breasts and genitals and mutilate their bodies so you can fit a different gender because it doesn't really actually matter what you do with your body. You can only think that's a good thing if you denigrate the body itself. So recently, there were videos that were spread widely from Boston Children's Hospital, and in it, there was a very nice-sounding medical professional who talked about gender-affirming hysterectomies for young girls. While smiling, very presentable, this person calmly talked about removing the reproductive organs of minors in the name of gender-affirming care. Rip out part of what makes a girl distinctly female and call it gender-affirming. That is the logic of our day. We won't let minors buy cigarettes but we will let them do irreparable damage to their bodies. And that is what modern gender theory leads to, a twisting of logic and reason and morality in the name of being affirmative. And it is why Christians are concerned about this. Because it leads to damage. Because anything that is contrary to how God wired us and designed us to be will inevitably lead to damage. Now the reality is, there are many, many people who, and probably some in this room, who struggle with their own maleness or femaleness and feel uncomfortable as a male or feel uncomfortable as a female and never quite fit in their own skin with that. And we have a label for that. We call it gender dysphoria. It's a real thing. And we as Christians ought to be very sympathetic and understanding of those who have this struggle because it's real. We would just differ in the solution. We would say that the solution is not to deny the reality of who you are physically and pretend by treatment or psychology to be something you are not that will not lead to health and wholeness. It will only lead to more confusion and despair. We believe the answer is not pretending to be something you're not, but finding peace not even in yourself, but peace in the God who made you who you are. There's a better answer. Which leads to another biblical point. It's like a nine-point sermon if you haven't figured it out by now. Another biblical point is crucial in this whole discussion. That is that Christ is Lord, not our passion. Christ is Lord. We worship and obey him and follow him at all costs, not whatever might be inside us, our own internal passions and desires. And the modern LGBTQ movement teaches us that to be whole and healthy, we are to follow whatever is inside of us, whatever we feel. And we would say that is actually contrary to the call of Christ. Luke 9.23, Jesus says, And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The call of Jesus to everyone is clear. He is Lord, 
and we are not. And if we are to be a disciple of Jesus and follow him, we lay down our own lives, pick up our own crosses, deny ourselves, and follow. The call of Christ is to come and die to yourself. And that includes dying to any internal desire that does not align with Scripture, with Christ, or God. Our world says the opposite, that the key to life is chasing down all your desires, all your passions, all your pursuits, everything you feel inside. Chase that down, and then you will find fulfillment and affirmation and wholeness, and that is a lie from the devil. Christ's call is exactly the opposite. According to our world, our passion should rule us, and Christianity says, not at all. If we are led by our passions and lusts, it will lead to destruction. We know, all of us, that it is not a good thing to submit to all of our passions and desires. Someone called this our authentic selves. Whatever we feel inside, just follow that. That is a horrible and destructive way to live, and we all know it. We all know that if we ate everything we wanted to eat, it would not lead to our health and wholeness. If we gossiped about everyone we wanted to gossip about, it would not lead to our health and wholeness. If we spoke every cruel word that came into our minds or acted on every hateful thought, it would not lead to our health and wholeness. I'll use the example of Larry Nasser again, who was the doctor for the U.S. women's gymnast team who was convicted as guilty of abusing and molesting dozens upon dozens of female gymnasts, more than that. Should he have followed his inner orientation? Should he lived his authentic self? And he did. And many were hurt. God's word of restraint upon our sinful and wicked desires and passions is a good thing for us. It is a good thing to call him Lord and not us. We assume there is a better master out there than our own desires. So what does Christianity or Scripture say to the same-sex attracted person? I know there's some in the room. What does Christianity and Christ require of the same-sex attracted person here? It requires something really incredibly difficult. To bear a difficult burden, to pick up your cross and deny your desire for the sake of following Jesus. That is a particularly difficult struggle. And for those of us who may not have that struggle, we ought to be very sympathetic. That is a unique burden to bear and not an easy fight. But that is the call that goes out to all Christians. By God's grace, restrain your passions and your sinful desires. And it's possible to do this. Jesus Christ himself did. He is not only our Lord, he's our example. Jesus Christ lived a full and healthy and whole life. He is the most human human to ever human. 
He is the fullest example of humanity, and he did so without ever acting out on sexual impulse. We don't know what fully went on in the inner mind of Jesus, but Hebrews tells us that he faced all kinds of temptations normal to humans, and he never sinned. And the call to Christians is to do the same. And that is the same call that goes to all people, no matter what your sexual orientation is, no matter what your desires are. It's not unique to same-sex attracted people. Everybody's in the same boat in this regard. We are all called not to act out according to sinful sexual desires. Now, if you're a Christian, you say, well, I've never done that. I'd say you might not be a Christian. Because that's what is required of all of us. It leads to my second to last point here from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are all saved by grace, not by sexuality. I want all of us to hear this clearly. We are all saved by grace, not by sexuality. I'll explain what I mean, but first listen to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So here's the simple truth of this glorious passage. We are all saved by the grace of God, not by our own works of righteousness, not by our morality, not by our right thinking, not by our sexual properness. We are not saved by our sexual fidelity. Also, we will not be saved and find hope and fulfillness and wholeness in chasing down our sexual desires. That is not the goal for us. That is not salvation for us. We are only saved by the work of Jesus Christ. Only he lived perfectly. Only he did not sin or give in to his passions and desires. Only he met the standard of God's holiness. Only he can free us from the guilt and shame we feel from sexual brokenness because only he died for those sins on the cross washing us clean. Only he can lead us to true fulfillment because only he died and was resurrected and ascended into heaven is preparing a place for us where we will dwell with him and his people and God forever in full satisfaction and peace and joy. That is our only hope. Only he provides that salvation. We will never find that in chasing down our sexual desires. And here's why it's important. Salvation is a gift by grace, which means that all of us need it, and all of us are in the same camp. All of us, regardless of orientation, regardless of how you identify, all of us are broken sexually and otherwise. So the same call goes out to all people. All are welcome and accepted by Jesus Christ because all need his salvation. This is the one thing I think about the LGBTQ movement that I respect and appreciate, at least in its stated goal, which is to be affirming and loving of all people. And I think that's why so many young people, and even people who grew up in the church, are attracted to this movement because they hear the, what Jesus says rightly about all being welcome and all being loved. They hear that and think, here's a movement that says all people are welcome and loved, and why wouldn't we want to identify with that? Why wouldn't we say it? We say, well, yeah, we say the same thing. All are welcome, all are loved. But we add also what Jesus says that sin destroys. And that all are welcome to Jesus Christ, but then also all are called to repent of sin and to find grace in Jesus Christ. And that grace is available to everybody. So if you're a person who experiences same-sex attraction, you may feel very lonely in that. You may feel isolated in your burden and your struggle, and it is an isolating thing. And I would say to you, you're not alone. You're in the same camp as everybody else. We are all broken. You do not have to 
necessarily hide. You may want to be careful about how you talk to and who about some of these things. Like all of us should be careful about who we talk to about our sexual brokenness. But you're not alone in that. You're in the same boat as all the other disciples. Lost at sea unless Jesus wakes up and saves us. And salvation is offered to all people. All people need grace. No person is perfect sexually. Which means that you're not saved by living a sexual right life. You are not saved by your hetero marriage. The hetero married couple who has four kids and lives a conservative life outside of Christ is in the same position as the gay man in the pride parade. Both condemned in sins. Unless Jesus Christ saves them. Unless he repents. And so we're reminded that heterosexual marriage is not our ultimate hope. This is an important point as well. Heterosexual marriage is not the hope of Christians. And when I pray for my kids at night and with my kids at night, my ultimate hope for them is not that they find a spouse that is fitting for them. It's one of my prayers. I'd like that for them. It would be a good thing. But it's not my ultimate hope for them because they're not going to be saved by hetero marriage. My ultimate hope for my children is that they are washed clean by Jesus Christ and found in him. That is the ultimate hope. Jesus himself says, this is why hetero marriage is a bad ultimate hope. It's a great thing. We celebrate it. We love it. Bad ultimate hope. Because in eternity, we're not married. Right? Jesus himself says this. I've got to look at the reference again. Matthew 22, 30. Yeah. Marriage won't exist in heaven. If that's your ultimate hope, you're doomed. Ephesians 5 tells us that our marriages, conducted rightly and gloriously according to the gospel, are a shadow of the true union we have with Jesus Christ. There is something better than that awaiting for us. And that is our hope. That leads to our last point. Our ultimate hope is in heaven with Christ. This is my last biblical application, Revelation 21, 3-4. Our ultimate hope is in heaven with Christ. Our ultimate hope is not in satisfaction and rest in this world, no matter our sexual inclinations. That's not where we find rest and peace. Our ultimate hope is in heaven with Christ. Revelation 21, 3 through 4 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is where our hope lies. Every sinful instinct removed, every longing fulfilled, every tension and struggle and trial in life laid to rest as we look to our ultimate union and peace and rest with God in Jesus Christ forever. That's our hope. Why is this important? Because this is the proper hope for all kinds of people. If you are a same-sex attracted Christian and you're dutifully worshiping God through it and living a celibate life, but you know it's lonely and you long for the kind of intimacy you see in other people and you know that that can't be yours and that is your burden to bear, this is your hope. That there is a day when that longing for intimacy will be gone because you'll have it dwelling with God and his people forever. That longing for intimacy is not just found 
I'm a celibate person. It's found in married couples as well. That longing will be fulfilled in union with Christ and his people. For those who are tormented by their same-sex attraction and wish they didn't have it. For those who are tormented by their sexual sin and struggles and wish they didn't have the temptations they had. Heaven holds out hope that we will be fully satisfied and at peace one day. That sin, that struggle laid to rest. For those who have made choices, they regret. Even if you've gone through transition and done irreparable change to your human body, heaven is hope for you because we know that in heaven we will be made new in imperishable, uncorrupted bodies. And the corruption that you feel well, significant, you may have to live with, well, it's the same corruption that all of our bodies are going to face. None won't face decay. But all of us have the same hope that in heaven we will be made new. For those who are weary of wickedness in this world, we're reminded that this world is not our home but it is in heaven with Jesus Christ. And for those who live with the fallout of sexual sin in this life, we find true hope and fulfillment, not in this world ultimately, but in heaven itself. And as we look towards that hope, we will find hope for today to live in this broken world with our broken selves. Not looking inward, but looking to worship God who is blessed forever. We'll be with him eternally. And this is the hope we hold out for all people. We offer this hope to all people without hate, without fear, but in total love to all sinners. Come and die to yourself in Jesus Christ and you will find the life and the peace you're looking for that the world cannot offer you with its lies. We have our hope in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to pray for those who are burdened uh, by this this morning, for those who are burdened by their sexual sin, no matter the orientation of it, no matter the fallen condition, particular expression of it, but for those who are weighted down by guilt and shame, I pray, Lord, that peace and rest will be found in Jesus Christ, who takes our shame and nails it to the cross. And hope will be found in the resurrection in him. Lord, we as a church help us to be both very convictional and not waver in truth and not give in to lies that are ultimately demonic. And yet at the same time be very gracious and sympathetic for all those who struggle knowing that we struggle ourselves, that we are sinners ourselves, that we are not saved by our own righteousness, but saved only by the grace of Jesus Christ. Let us send out, Lord, that message of love acceptance for all who will come and make Jesus Lord. Amen.